The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte, and we are live in Stockbridge at the Norman Rockwell Museum. Because where is there more winter holiday aesthetics than the Berkshires? You're thinking of answers right now. Stop. It's idyllic here. And we've got wicked cool holiday times in store for you today. We'll speak with the director of the Triplex Cinemas in Great Barrington about their Bring Back the Movies Holiday Edition event at Simon's Rock this Saturday, as well as two of the actors who will be reading. And Oh Hey has added bonus, their Berkshire's residents too, Jane Atkinson and Michael Gill. And we'll have a little live music from Pittsfield singer-songwriter Billy Keane, who not only is a member of Whiskey Treaty Roadshow, and has a great solo catalog, including his latest album, Oh These Days, released earlier this fall. And we'd be remiss to be in this museum without talking about the work of the man for whom it's named. And here to talk to us about not just Rockwell's work, but some of the exhibits happening now and what you can look forward to in the museum is Chief Curator and Deputy Director Stephanie Plunkett. Stephanie is the author of two American Library Association notable children's books and the curator of many exhibitions exploring the field of illustration, including The Unknown Hopper, Edward Hopper as illustrator, William Steig, Love and Laughter, Ephemeral Beauty, Al Parker, and The American Woman's Magazine, and many, many more. She began her professional career in the field of museum education and has previously held positions at the Brooklyn Museum, the Brooklyn Children's Museum, and the Hechner Museum of Art in Huntington, New York, not not (laughs) Huntington Museum. Okay. And is now here as chief curator at the Norman Rockwell Museum. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> We're glad to be here too. And we've uh, this is our last live broadcast of our first year of doing a show here. So and this our two hundredth show. Yes. So it's a kind of a, a fun and momentous occasion. And uh, Norman Rockwell Museum is a place I was lucky enough to visit about ten years ago with my kids. And Norman Rockwell is almost a name that needs no introduction. But let's for a moment pretend that. People don't know about the history and legacy of Norman Rockwell. Um, Stockbridge was not his first home. You are right about that. Uh, He did live in Stockbridge for his last 25 years, which is why the museum is here. But he was actually born in New York City in 1894 and uh, started to move north gradually. So living in uh, Mamaroneck, New York, New Rochelle, New York, Arlington, Vermont, and then finally Stockbridge. And he did not live here on the campus of the museum. He lived about a mile away in in downtown Stockbridge. That's exactly right. Uh, He lived across the street from the historic Red Lion Inn, where he uh, frequently uh, had some dinner. (laughs) And um, he established a really wonderful studio behind his home, which is now on the museum grounds and is open for visitation. But not in the winter because there isn't as much. Yeah, we tried to go visit it. Yeah, we did. Like, we couldn't oh. go in. We'll I'm sorry back. about that. Come back. Please come back, Please come back in the out. spring. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, his work is, I think, most well known as the covers of The Post, but there's so much more to that story of him joining the staff of The Post or being contracted by The Post. And we start with the beginning of his illustrations, at least in that period of time for him. Yeah, his, so the Post, he called the Saturday Evening Post the greatest show window in America for an illustrator. And that is because, um, of course, we don't think about it now, but the way that people enjoyed entertainment and received information was through print media in Rockwell's time. And so the Post, even in Rockwell's earliest years, had a weekly subscription rate of about 3 million. Wow. Um, going eventually up to almost 6 million later in his career. So... When you think about the fact that, as the Post said, uh, every issue was probably seen by at least 10 people. So if you went to your local um, you know, doctor's office or grocery store, or it was just everywhere. And so the artists who were featured, especially on the covers, became celebrities. And they endorsed products, and they uh, were really trusted uh, commentators. So um, you know, Rockwell really became a household name in his time. And, uh, he was working for more than six decades, so he had, uh, the way that we think about him is he was probably the most influential illustrator of the 20th century. That's really interesting, um, considering how 
I think in modern time, like illustration is really not respected as much as other visual art mediums. To say that there were celebrities is kind of like is really interesting. Like here is this this medium that is definitely very like it it sh- explains a lot about the current situation of of the world especially in that format but isn't really looked at in that same way now like what happens in that period of time to sort of knock it down a few pegs you know it's that's a great question um during rockwell's time people loved illustration because they were narrative pictures that told stories and um in a way people felt that rockwell showed them the best in themselves um but there was some controversy in the mid-20th century because, of course, abstract expressionism was the art of the nation, and illustration was viewed as a lesser art form. But what's interesting now, I think, is that uh, visual storytelling is very prominent across all media. And so artists have become, in a way, more integral to, to society, which is a, a very nice thing. Um, Though I think the ability to achieve the fame that Rockwell did as an illustrator is a little bit harder because things are more, um, I'd say, spread out. But when you think about the number of artists who are included in um, you know, digital media, animation, um, you know, when you look at uh, pretty much any uh, Facebook uh, <laughs> site or internet site, um, you're really seeing the work of illustrators. Well, it's interesting because now there, you know, we go to Google and you look mm-hmm. at the Google Doodle and you say, mm-hmm. oh, you know, this artist has done the Google Doodle for the day. Or maybe at least in print media, you know, we still have the New Yorker. There's a, right. a friend of mine from Ashfield who's done four or five New Yorker covers. So there is this yeah. still pining to be both in print and in the digital world. And an artist that I used to work with in my former life who's done like many there, Kate Beaton. Uh-huh. <laughs> So it's something that still exists, but that Rockwell, you know, is the most famous for. He did over 300 of these uh, Saturday Evening Post covers, and you can go see them all in the basement of the Norman Rockwell Museum, <laughs> where Pee Wee's bike is. Oh, no, that's the Alamo. Um, <laughs> but it's, the, the times period which he spans is remarkable, because he starts in the, in the mid-teens of the 20th century and goes all the way up through the assassination of JFK. And you can chart that course through his work. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, we, the way that I, we think about illustration is that it actually both reflected and shaped um, mm-hmm. the world around them. And so Rockwell's work through the decades was really a reflection on society at the time. Um, it also reflected the attitudes, uh, the cultural attitudes uh, that were considered the norm. And so, um, you know, publishers and advertisers and illustrators were kind of a part of a compendium that presented a particular view on American life. And so, um, you know, there was, I think they were all very influential because of the number of people that they reached. I think that in a small part also leads to him leaving the Post, too, because of the ideology at the Post that wasn't being that he wasn't able to reflect in his work um, or didn't want to reflect in his work. Um, You have more about this. Well, I mean, you know, he you could look at the early works of Norman Rockwell and view see this idealized idea of what America and Americans can be if you're white. Um, (laughs) But the reason that there are so few people of color in the Saturday Evening Post covers is because of the editorial board of the Saturday Evening Post. Can you talk more about that? And then his transition into doing stuff that may have reflected more of his vision. Absolutely. Uh, You know, the Post was a very conservative magazine. And they were also a magazine, like all magazines, that were supported by advertising. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when they considered their editorial positions, that had a lot to do with what they reflected in the magazine. So, Rockwell um, very much uh, on many occasions tried to push against that thinking, the idea that if a person of color was reflected on the cover, it would be in a service role as opposed to, you know, maybe a doctor, a lawyer, uh, or or other. Um, But the... Uh, His ability to, I think, push against that uh, was limited. 
In the 1960s, he actually presented, at the time, a, a cover that was somewhat groundbreaking, and we don't think of it that way now. But in 1961, there was a cover called The Golden Rule, published, which portrayed um, you know, people from various races and ethnicities from around the world uh, in one cover with the tenet, um, the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And um, it took uh, several months, actually, for the Post to finally publish that cover, which frustrated Rockwell a bit. But the concept of people um, of all races standing next to each other as equals, and even in early 1960, uh, was not that common in illustration. So, um, you know, from there, Rockwell, uh, I think, really finally understood that, you know, as a spokesperson who had so much reach and who was so trusted, um, he almost had a responsibility to make statements that were meaningful um, culturally and within society. So um, in 1963, he made the decision to leave the post, and he began to work for Look magazine, which was uh, really focused on contemporary issues. And his very first illustration for Look, which was published in January 1964, was um, commentary on the 10th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education ruling, which stated that separate is not equal in America's public schools. Uh, so from there, I think he began to um, understand that, as almost an elder statesman at that point, uh, he could have an impact with his work. And in fact, uh, we have this amazing archive of letters uh, from just regular people who were commenting on uh, the importance of what Rockwell was doing at the time. That's Stephanie Plunkett, who is the chief curator and deputy director of the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, where we are right now. Uh, one thing that's interesting about his transition to Stockbridge has to do with his own mental health. Now, I'll say shameless plug, become a member of NEPM and you get the Passport app and you can get all these PBS documentaries. And the PBS uh, American Masters about Norman Rockwell is fascinating and talks a lot about why he, for his own mental health and for his wife's mental health at the time, sought solace here in Stockbridge. That's true. Uh, so Rockwell, you know, was a very busy working illustrator. He pretty much worked every day uh, for extended days. And his wife, Mary, uh, the mother of their three sons, was uh, struggling with um, depression and alcoholism. And she was being treated at the Austin Riggs Center here in Stockbridge. And um, what I think they finally realized was that a move was going to be necessary because Arlington, Vermont, where they were living, was more than an hour away. And um, so they moved to Stockbridge, which became a community that they really loved. I mean, I think they were embraced almost immediately by people in town. Um, it became a place where Rockwell, in a way, found um, another fresh beginning because he found a whole new retinue of models and friends uh, and things that really stimulated his thinking about his work. Because, of course, he was a great observer of human nature, and uh, I think he also appreciated the shift that that provided. But he himself was actually um, being treated by the famous psychotherapist Eric Erickson. And he and Erickson uh, developed a kind of a therapeutic friendship in which they discussed uh, the world situation. And the concept of the golden rule actually was something that the both of them were quite interested in and discussed on a regular basis. So uh, Erickson actually wrote about the golden rule um, extensively. And Rockwell presented his painting, uh, which I just talked about. And I think um, through that friendship, uh, Rockwell really um, had the support, in a way, to make more personal statements. I feel like it's worth noting that that particular painting, The Golden Roll, is currently on display at the museum. Like, you can go 
um, and with your admission, see this painting that we're talking about. And it really is like large and remarkable. You get an idea of how big these illustrations were to begin with, to be shrunk down to, yeah. to magazine size. <laughs> <laughs> but then also that painting goes on to become a mosaic at the United Nations of all places. Yes. It, you know, from somebody who was perhaps restrained from getting involved politically and trying to paint literally an idealized version of a certain aspect of America goes on to paint this painting that now is globally recognized as a statement of, of the golden rule. Um, I want to talk to you more about Norman Rockwell, and I think we will. Should we, we will. At yeah, the end, at of, the the end of the show, we're going to talk more. Don't let us forget to talk about George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Norman Rockwell. And how much of their collect his <laughs> collection they own. We'll check back in with Stephanie Pluckett a little later in the show to hear about what's currently happening at the museum and more about Rockwell himself. We've got some bona fide Hollywood stars in the building who are working on the rebuilding of the Triplex Cinema not far from here in Great Barrington. And coming right up, the music of Pittsfield's Billy Keen. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM, and our next guest is singer-songwriter and Pittsfield resident Billy Keen. Billy was discovered by the strangely unknown musician James Taylor, who he counts amongst his influences with Phil Ox and Dylan and other legends who have written songs of freedom, love, and the plight of humanity with such fervor. Billy's musical legacy has taken him to venues, communities, and festivals all over the U.S. He's even going to go to Brooklyn tonight. He's got... The honor of sharing the stage with or supporting folks like Yo-Yo Ma, Molly Tuttle, The Gin Blossoms, Blues Traveler, and more. Although Keen might be best known for co-founding the Americana group Whiskey Treaty Rose Show, that's just the latest in a slew of bands that he's been a part of over the years, including the Misdemeanor Outlaws and The Waking Dream, who are currently backing him. His latest solo album, Oh These Days, was released earlier in the fall. And he'll be performing this Saturday, December 16th, at the Egremont Barn. Thank you, Billy King. Well, thanks, guys. I just learned so much about myself. <laughs> How much of that was fabricated? <laughs> you know, the only thing that doesn't seem to hold true is I've since moved to Lenox. But okay. We're, oh, we're, okay. You know, same you idea. You live in Pittsfield. Indeed, I did for many you years. moved down the road a bit. That's yeah. exactly right. I'm still in the, the fabulous 413. That's true. And he's now living in James Taylor's basement, which is cool. <laughs> How creepy would that be? Because he certainly didn't give me permission for that. This is a safe space if you need help. <laughs> oh, thank you. I can tell. I can tell. Jeez, I was totally enraptured by your conversation just then about Norman Rockwell. That was really incredible. Do you have any other questions about Norman Rockwell? I have tons, actually. Right. But well, uh, I also have this burning desire to play music, so well, I'm not okay. sure. Play music. <laughs> then if you want to stay after, you can continue to ask questions. I would love to. Brooklyn. Oh, that's true. Let's we hear a song. All right, let's do it. I'd love to play Fresh Flowers, if that's okay. Sounds great. Yeah, well, I worked for years down Louisiana game. Well, I lost my money trying to buy cocaine Well, I was wasting time down in New Orleans Yeah, well, ain't nothing down is the way it seems Yeah, I'm trying to let it go Take it slow Try to live your life Fresh flowers on a table Lord, they do smell nice I met a gypsy girl She read them tarot cards she kissed me heavy and she read my stars Well, she never told me what the stars did say I never saw it coming when she ran away Oh, I'm trying to let her go Can't make things right Yeah, I gotta take it slow Try to live my life Yeah, fresh flowers on 
here at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge on the fabulous 413. He is playing at the Egremont Barn in Egremont this Saturday. I love how differently that sounds with just you on guitar than the version that's on your album. Mm. Um, do When you're going in for new work, are you building songs just like this and then mm. fleshing it out? Or do you bring a bunch of people into the room and see if you can all craft the song together? Oh, I love that question. So usually I write independently and I typically do it just like this. Uh, that song was one of those that happened in a morning with a coffee and, you know, a joint. <laughs> it was like, oh, hello. <laughs> but then you get into the studio and uh, the way that I like to work is to involve the brains and the creative energies of other people who are going to be participating on the making of the record. So... My producer, his name is James Wallace, he goes by Skyway Man, but he's got this incredible kind of like a musical visionary vibe to him. And uh, when we were prepping for the record, uh, you know, he's like, I've got some interesting ideas for that track. And one of them involved, you know, boosting the tempo by a bunch and kind of bringing this like cool uh, cosmic country like bop behind it. So it was great. We just kind of whipped it out in the studio like that. The question now becomes, how do we perform it? And it's yeah. literally, it's, it's different every time. Isn't it always? It always is different every time. And in fact, we've got a pretty great arrangement happening tonight in Brooklyn that nobody's heard before. So oh. That's right. Well, will they hear it at the Agramont Barn on Saturday? Indeed, too? they will. Tell Very us about cool. the band that you're playing with tonight oh, and on, to. on Saturday. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so honored to play with these fellas. Sometimes when people say, uh, they ask about Billy Keen and the Waking Dream. I, I say, well, I'm their singer, because basically that's how I feel. You know, it's <laughs> David Tanklevsky on electric guitar. He's, um, he's got some influences that range from like the Jerry Garcia kind of beautiful melodic noodling all the way out to like some pretty wild funk influence. And he brings all of that to how he creates on stage. Brian Cantor plays drums with me. He's kind of a legend in the, in the industry. He's been around forever. Fruit Bats, a lot of their stuff. He played a bit with Vetiver and... And now I'm really grateful that he hops in my Toyota Sienna toy, uh, tour van, you know, and cruises around <laughs> with me. And then Miles Lally, another kind of legendary dude. He was in L.A. for a long time and then came out to the Berkshires and 
he uh, he's our bass player and man, I'm their singer. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> so cool. That singer is Billy Keen, who is joining us live from the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge on the mm-hmm. Fabulous 413. Uh, in similar fashion to my first song, yeah. uh, my first song, first question, like, are the songs that you write for Whiskey Treaty Roadshow mm. fundamentally different from the ones you keep for yourself? Uh, yeah, kind of. You know, I, I, I don't write to anything except the song. And, uh, you know, I think the Whiskey Treaty, they're such a great group of, they're kind of like family when we get together because we don't see each other for shows. It's like going home to dinner or something like that. <laughs> um, that's a very specific sound, a very specific energy. And uh, so when I'm writing, you know, I, I kind of, what I do with The Waking Dream is different. It's a bit more, you know, dynamic and introspective and coming from like a singer songwriter perspective. So, yeah, I have definitely written songs specifically for The Whiskey Treaty. We recorded a couple of those live last year, but. Yeah, uh, when I'm writing something like Fresh Flowers, it's being able to perform it with The Waking Dream is such an incredible thing for me. Yeah. We were teasing that you were discovered by James Taylor. <laughs> yeah. You did tell us a funny story about that. Are you able to tell that story publicly or you can say no uh, comment? I don't, I don't want people to think that there's something like super bad about this story, but <laughs> I also don't think I should share it less, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about it you, off. You air. Okay, say we'll no. I wanted to give you that out. I wanted yeah. to give you that out. My attorneys are waiting in the hallway. <laughs> okay, Let go. me confer with them. If you meet That's police fair. or I on the street, we will tell you the story in person. But do <laughs> yes, tell, As you should. Talk, <laughs> tell us about your relationship with James Taylor musically then. Oh, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that it's interesting just because it was such a great experience at the time, but we don't really have a relationship now except for those wonderful memories. I had moved here from Louisiana. This sounds like it's non sequitur, but it relates. I was, a, I was a commercial diver in Louisiana for a couple of years, kind of a weird thing. And then the fellow who was going to record a record for me, um, he, he just wanted me to do like a solo thing. He was working for the Taylors up here. So the first time I ever knew of the Berkshires, stepped foot in the Berkshires, was when I was putting a deposit down in an apartment and we were going to record this record. So it was very strange. And then I met, you know, the, the Taylors and their, and their crew through my producer at the time. And they're just super supportive, amazing people, you know. Um, and so for that first year, I, I hadn't really expected on sticking around. I didn't know how the songwriting thing was going to go. I, was, I still had a job as a commercial diver. I was just, you know, taking some time. Um, but they were very supportive and uh, introduced me to some really wonderful people. And that's kind of how that went, you know. Does the weather make you regret this decision? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, geez, I, I can't. I grew up in Connecticut, so it's not like I don't know about the cold. But the two years I spent in Louisiana ruined me. Yeah. I, I can't, you know. I was there for a weekend and it practically ruined Exactly. Me. I wear a parka starting in like September. And I wander around in my parka with the hood up because I'm freezing cold all the time. Uh, it does get beautiful, especially this. People should visit the museum for so many reasons, but one of them is that it's the, the grounds are just gorgeous. When there's a nice, fresh, fallen snow on there, it's pretty amazing. We all turn into Norman Rockwell. We're yeah. like painting. <laughs> you can imagine that there's a fresh, fallen snow out there today. It's true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we are at the Norman Rockwell Museum, uh, broadcasting live here on the Fabulous 413. Mm. Shall we hear one more from Billy uh, Keene, who plays yeah. at Egremont Barn this Saturday? Let's. All right. I'd love to do one for you. I think I'm going to, I would love to play a song called Halo. It's off that new record again. Judgment tell you everything is wrong. 
Gotta say, coming up from the bottom, everything feels like heaven. Yeah, we've been there all along. I don't need nobody to tell me what it takes to be holy, what it means to be saved. I can feel the spirit moving within me. It's the truth that I'm feeling. Take it with me to my grave. Well, meaning learn as I go. the founders of Whiskey Treaty Roadshow and his latest solo album, Oh These Days, is out now. And he and his band, The Waking Dream, will be performing at the Egremont Barn on December 16th. Find tickets and information on his website or at theegremontbarn.com. So good. Thank you so much for joining right. us. Thank you. It was so much fun. Yeah, we love having you here, Billy. Well, let's do it again. Let's all meet up at the museum again. Yeah, yes. I love that. <laughs> Thanks, dude. Coming up, speaking of the museum, we're broadcasting live from the Norman Rockwell Museum. And later in the show, you can hear some of the things you can currently see in the winter wonderland that is the Norman Rockwell Museum. We'll have more with Chief Curator Stephanie Plunkett. But first, we'll talk about a star-studded, movie-based live reading to support a cinema just down the street. And you're listening to The Fabulous 413 live from the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge. Not far from this museum in Great Barrington, a theater revival is underway. The Triplex Cinema in Great Barrington is hosting Bring Back the Movies. <laughs> it's a fundraiser for the newly revived Triplex Cinema. The Triplex the triplexes bring back the movies events offer live readings of scenes from iconic movies or the plays on which they're based the holiday edition will include scenes from both old favorites such as it's a wonderful life rockwell connection there yes, definitely and a christmas carol as well as newer classics such as home alone love actually and elf actually rockwell connection for a christmas carol too i'm sure yeah uh, he was a big fan. He was. Joining us from this Saturday's event that's happening at Simon's Rock are actors and Berkshire residents, Jane Atkinson, Michael Gill, who happen to be married, but this was news to me, and I think many uh, fans of the show House of Cards, but we'll talk about that in a little bit, and director <laughs> Michelle Joyner. Uh, thank you all for joining us here at the Rockwell Museum. Wonderful, so happy to, Wonderful be here. to be here. Uh, not to make a sort of irreverent connection, but the base of this reminds me a lot of Rocky Horror, like when you when you see it done by like a group of players that know it, like it's a similar thing to where you've got the movie and then you're reading. They like they know all the lines, so they're acting it out in front in costume. Now, no, I don't think anyone's expecting you to be in costume while you're doing this, but maybe that's a suggestion for later. <laughs> I love that idea. We have a few little prop things, you know, fingerless gloves for Scrooge, for right. example, Gotta just to them. give it a the nightcap, you know, kind of thing. Um, but... A highball. <laughs> a 
Is that what you'll be having? Oh, yes. Very welcome. Very welcome. But we don't, but I, I, um, I don't encourage the actors to mimic the original movies. I encourage them to watch them and be familiar with what was done, but make it their own and do it an interpretation that that suits our group and our our actors. And you know, it's not not every scene is perfect casting for those roles, but um, that doesn't matter. It they, makes it more yeah. fun. I would imagine. Yes, it's right. great. It's yeah. Your, when it's I was uh, in seventh grade, I was tall for my age, and I played Tiny Tim. It worked out great. <laughs> Uh, it's better when it's ironic. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, Michelle Joyner, who's the director of this event that's happening, bring back the movies, uh, uh, to a benefit for the Triplex, which is showing movies again. It had yes. closed, it was renovations, yeah. there are movies that are going on there right now. I was just looking at them, so many yeah. of them that I want to see. Actually, Maestro opens tonight, though. Oh yeah, Maestro. Ooh, yeah. That was the one I was like, I gotta go see that one. Yeah. Uh, but tell us about where this idea came from, and how well, you can, I mean, the Berkshires is rich with talent, but how you can get so much talent together to support something like this. We did a show, we did the same show with pretty much the same cast, including these guys, um, in, what was it, August? It was in August sometime, right? And that, of just iconic movie scenes. And, um, and because it was any movie, it was really, I mean, there's just, how, how do you choose? Yeah. You know, it's, and people were like sending me lists, you have to include this, you have to include this. <laughs> so you just have to do the choosing, it wasn't the actors, or uh, was it? Yeah, no, it was pretty much me, oh, Nikki nice. Wilson, um, the producer, and uh, anyway, um, but this is holiday movie specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was, a, you know, there's, there's not as many, obviously, holiday movies, but there's a lot. And oh, so, yeah. but it was fun to, it was fun to research them. And, uh, but the, the idea was, Everyone loves um, everyone loves their favorite movies and their favorite movie scenes, and to have actors, um, especially actors that are known and local, and and uh, come and, out you and you know talented. No, oh, yeah, talented. <laughs> yes, saying, yes, Jane talented. Jane but also to play to play <laughs> to play. <laughs> to play <laughs> Uh, but, but to play roles that you know it, that is a role that they you know never got to play and probably never would get to play. Norma um, Norma Desmond. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Really? Yeah. Yes. Jane crushed it as in Sunset Boulevard last night. <laughs> it was the yeah. scarf <laughs> and looking yeah. out into the distance. <laughs> and also that we use a lot of mu- movie music too. That's so great. Yes, and so we have sing-alongs and the audience, you know, sings along, and it's just very heartwarming oh. and heart-opening and. And you know, when I wrote the show, when I created the show this time, I wore a Santa hat. Oh yeah, I almost wore a Santa hat today. <laughs> Dang it! Uh, that is the director of Bring Back the Movies, which is going to have a, a benefit for the Triplex Cinema in Great Barrington this Saturday at Simon's Rock. And we're also joined by Jane Atkinson and Michael Gill, who are the actors, some of the actors that will be part of it. What was, what did you enjoy about doing this in August that brought you back for the, the December show? What did you love most about doing this? The feeling in the audience, um, responding to lines that we all know um, and are familiar with from our favorite movies, and the sing-along. Yeah. What did you sing along to in that one? Oh, um, do you remember? Um, Of course, our minds are all blank. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) But it was all songs that we we knew, right? And so you see an entire audience of adults singing with you and it just they all we all sort of became young again mm-hmm. and and we sort of had this shared experience of these movies that we loved so much you and know? it's this middle world between uh sharing and not perf- performance oriented where you can actually communicate with the audience oh yeah all right yeah. so we're prepared up to a certain point we're not off book it's sort of a cold warmish reading we can communicate <laughs> with our audience. Um, It's this wonderful world of storytelling that um, we don't get to do when we're either in front of a camera or when we're doing a full production of a play. That fourth wall is there. And so this gives us an opportunity to really share with the community. And even when we make mistakes, wink and nod with them, along with them, and, and have a really great time. Michael and I did Moonstruck. Oh, wow. Right, right, yeah. see? Snap out. Snap out. So there we are, we're doing Moonstruck, you know, and that famous line, snap out of it. Right? So you know that's coming up, and I said, well, how do we do this? And we sort of mimed, and he flipped his head that way, and I went like this, and he flipped his head that way. Acting. And he literally smacked it. Smacking is the best. That's what it's called. Smacking. I do remember um, 
just thinking about how can I not remember any of these songs? We did a tribute to Harold and Mata. We did a oh. lot of the oh, Cat Stevens Cat. songs. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Great. Greg did that. Yeah, right. was beautiful. There, there was, was some really beautiful. nice music. Yeah. One of my favorite movies, hands down. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, have you seen it? I've seen it times? at least 30 times. Yeah. 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 Every year. Every year. That. Yeah. Through high school, we kind of had a weekly showing of it oh. in, in my dorm. I went to boarding school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was one that was always checked out somewhere from the library because we had a, a cache of, but like that was one of the favorites. Wow. It was always showing somewhere every weekend on campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was wonderful. Great. Never gets old. Yeah. Never gets old. <laughs> so it was the feeling that happened and it was so positive and it, 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 it just enlivened and, and there was this community connection. And, you know, these times that we're in are challenging. They're challenging in so many ways. And so when we were done, we went over to Michelle and Robert, her husband Robert, and we had uh, dinner and we started talking. And I said, why don't we do this again? (laughs) (laughs) And and they sort of, you know, big eyes at me. I said, how about, the, you know, why don't we do Bring Back to the Movies the Holidays? And he said, we're doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, and we're doing it. Uh, yeah. it's a very, volunteered it's a, yeah. yet again. <laughs> but it's a very natural fit to do a holiday movie yeah, really. show. Yes. Because really again, is. they're so iconic. And, they're, and, and there's so many Christmas carols. We have Hanukkah songs. We're doing a scene from Diary of Anne Frank. We're doing, you know, there's, you know, there, we're, we're, it's heart, it's, some of it is very heartwarming and touching. And others is just silly and fun, like you know we're doing the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song from Saturday Night Live. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Dated version we or the original doing, version? We. Oh, Michael, you're we. doing that. <laughs> All right, Michael's That's like doing. That's what I say. We, we need to take out the garbage. <laughs> we. We need to it's take the, out. It's the royal we, honey. We need to fix the car. <laughs> but, um, speaking of that community connection. Um, any of you, if you'd like to speak on just the connection, especially between like community theater, community cinemas like this, like smaller cinemas that are really important to the vitality of communities like Great Barrington, like like other ones that have like small like art house and and smaller cinemas and why it's important to revive them if they are struggling and support them if they are struggling. And worth noting to the listener, you're all film and television actors mm-hmm. and, you know, have yeah. the idea that Great Barrington would not have the triplex. Mm-hmm. The hole that that would create was, you know, we were out, we weren't even in town. We found that out when we got back, and Nikki and uh, citizens swarmed together to keep the triplex there. Is a, a enormous they, feat they of did, dedication yeah, what and they what did they did because I just could not. The Berkshire International Berkshire Theatre Festival is there. I mean, mm-hmm. a film festival is there. And the idea that this place would not exist anymore was, was heart-wrenching because it is a place where people gather. And bringing people back to the movies, you know, post-pandemic, if we can say that, <laughs> is hard because people are nervous still about going to the theater and there aren't as many movies that have been produced and they're comfortable on their couches and they're and yeah. we've got you know well, that's the whole bigger question right? Right. so the idea that are movies we, being made anymore the right. idea that we we saved that place in the contribution that we made um is enormous and and I think there should be a film made about it. We may be talking to the right people. Well, because of what you just said, because these small art houses and small businesses and people who just didn't make it through the pandemic because because they couldn't make ends meet, this kind of you know um, I always call the Grinch who stole Christmas when everyone stands around and what really is what's left mm-hmm. and it's holding hands and caring about each other and making the community happen. Having a group sing. And a group thing. Come on. <laughs> Making the triplex grow three right. sizes but that I day. Also, <laughs> I, would, I would also like to add to what Jane just said, and that is it's very difficult now for small cinemas to stay solvent. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just don't really make money having a commercial, a small commercial theater these days. And many of you know, the model is now becoming either they close or they become nonprofit. You know, it happened right. in Amherst, it happened in Chatham, it, ha- you know, it happened in, I think, Millerton. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're following a model. It's not like we're reinventing something that's never been done, but it seems like the only way forward at this point. And it is a 501c3 nonprofit, and mm-hmm. I think there that is something good. It is a yes. good way forward. It may yes. be the only way forward because we, we've talked about this many times on the show. We seem to 
decide as a, a country that we don't want to invest in the arts in the way that, that other nations do. Yes, or that we have previously. construct of wanting to sit at home in the coziness, pausing, going to get a drink, going to the back. You have this ability and facility to, to not, you know, there's no impetus anymore to mm. have this community experience. Mm. And we've lost that. Um, and it's sort of turned over to the big sound effect movies that you have to see on a much bigger screen that people are drawn to. But when it comes just to storytelling, people can watch that on a phone and be just as um, scrutinizing of the sound and right. the visuals as they would be on a big screen. So they're just deciding not to go and spend that kind of money. But it is very different to see those to see movies at all, I wouldn't say those type of movies, to see movies at all on a much larger screen than you can really afford to have in your house yeah. in general. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the same way that like other arts, are, it's really important to make sure that you are going out and engaging of with course. the arts. It's magic. Like in, it's in public like, and really like, like regardless of medium because yeah. like that connection between you and the art that is happening, let alone your greater community, is really important to like, yeah. it, it's why we keep going as humans. Really. Right. We're in a very, very difficult time of challenge <laughs> with that because people are being drawn to being alone. And, yeah. But also just exper 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 the experience of being at a movie with, with many other people, um, you know, emotions are contagious. Mm -hmm. If you feel people getting emotional, something's really sad, before you know it, everyone in your row is weeping right. and, or laughing or right. scared to death. And it's different. Or you're Nicole Kidman alone in a movie theater <laughs> just talking about how amazing movies are. <laughs> right. Right. <Yeah>. But you <laughs> so, won't be alone in this uh, setting and you'll be able to interact in a way that seems really fun, kind of a la Mystery Science Theater with actual actors recreating these beloved scenes from these beloved holiday movies. So cool. And, and songs. songs. It's the Triplexes Bring Back the Movies event. It's happening this Saturday at Simon's Rock. Uh, we're joined by the director, Michelle Joyner, as well as the couple, Jane Atkinson and Michael Gill, who will be doing a romantic scene from a holiday movie, too. Two. One of them I know about is from Shop Around the Corner. What's the other one? Uh, it's, it's Christmas uh, in Connecticut. Christmas, oh. Christmas in Connecticut. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. And then the other thing that's interesting to me is, um, I'm, you know, you've been in films and all sorts of television shows, but to me, I feel like I'm speaking with the President of the United States, <laughs> Garrett Walker, watch out. from House of Cards, as well as Secretary of State. Catherine, oh, now really watch out. Catherine Durant, your fate on that show, without re revealing anything, does not end up well for either of you, one of you in well, particular. Well, I almost took Frank down, if you remember. I do remember that, and it was so great. But the I will remind people that the title of the show is House of Cards. Yeah. <laughs> but before we, um, before we let you go, they didn't know that you were a couple either when you were on the set. Is they that true? Didn't. Yeah. In fact, it was wonderful. The first table read, um, we were all sitting around, and Jane and I were sitting next to each other, and we were, you know, doing what we do, holding hands, hugging, whatever. And <laughs> we, people we were looking at us. Uh, and at one point, uh, I don't remember, Reggie. Reggie looked at us and said, what's going on? <laughs> do you, this, is, this is really rapid. <laughs> but to that, even then, you know, I was, uh, went into the Oval for the first rehearsal. And I had sent pictures for them to put on the back desk by the window, just for historical references and mm -hmm. stuff. And I went to look at how they dressed the set. And there were a bunch of pictures with me and Jane. And I went to the prop designer and I said, um, that's my wife, but she's also going to be the Secretary of State. In the show. In the show. And he was like, what? <laughs> And the same thing happened with me with a picture of him. Uh, and they had to, they had to, they gave me red hair or something like that. But Robin had no idea we were married. We had been in, you know, we've been, been shooting. That's been a while. And it been for a while. And I said, there's my husband. And, he, and, and do you work together often? Is that something that, not on television. Not yeah. Theater no, we've done, but yeah. not on television. Right. So well, they're going to work together this weekend yes, we yes. Um, yes. to help continue to save the triplex. And we've been speaking with Jane Atkinson and Michael Gill, the husband and wife acting team, who will be part of it as well as the director. Director, Michelle Joyner. It sounds like a great event this Saturday. And we Simon's have two Rock. shows. Two shows, two shows. Three, three and six o'clock. Yeah. Yes. Oh, cool. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and before we wrap up today's show, we want to hear a little bit more about the Norman Rockwell Museum and what else is in store. So up next, we'll check back in with Stephanie Plunkett, the chief curator and deputy director, to hear about some of the non-Rockwell-related exhibits here 
It is the Fabulous 413 live from the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge. And we are once again joined by Stephanie Plunkett, the chief curator and deputy director of the museum. In just a couple minutes that we have left, tell us a little bit about Between Worlds, the art and design of Leo Leone. Yeah, thank you. This is an exhibition that went up recently focusing the on the art of a revolutionary mid-century designer and illustrator, Leo Leone. Uh, so there's a really wonderful array of work uh, that he did uh, in uh, classic modernist design, but I think especially a great gallery of his children's book art, mm. which became so famous. Um, books like Frederick and um, Pezzettino and books that really tell great um, contemporary fables about um, just how to live in the world in, in a positive way. Yeah, definitely like a, an Aesop's fable kind of vibe with so many of the books. Um, and then you can also see the inspiration uh, behind of what maybe Eric Carle and his style of drawings and, and illustrations would go on to do and as well. And just the giant breadth of, of mediums that he worked within is really kind of astounding. Yeah, Absolutely. it was really great to go through that. Now, I did tease before that we need to, before we wrap up, know about the George Lucas slash Steven Spielberg connection with the Norman Rockwell Museum. And their rivalry. And their rivalry. <laughs> their <laughs> collections. Well, both uh, Spielberg and Lucas are big Rockwell collectors. And obviously... Uh, that has to do with Rockwell's prominence as a visual storyteller, but um, it has been commented by both of them that Rockwell's ability to tell a story in one frame, a complete story in one frame in a way, uh, has been very inspirational to both movie directors. And Rockwell actually once said that if he hadn't been an illustrator, he would have wanted to be a movie director. Mm. So That's natural amazing. connection there. And again, shameless plug. Become a member of NEPM, get the Passport app, watch the American Masters. Spielberg talks a lot about his love for Norman Rockwell. We love Norman Rockwell, and we've loved having this time here at the Norman Rockwell Museum broadcasting live. Stephanie Plunkett, who is the deputy director and the chief curator here, uh, thank you so much for welcoming thank us. Thank you Thanks so to all much of our guests who've been here. here. What a great show. Yeah. We appreciate it. Come make a visit. See their awesome train set. Yeah, we can't <laughs> wait to come back. Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, it's a holiday edition of Live Music Friday. We welcome Kimaya Diggs, who'll play an intimate holiday show with friends at the Drake and Amherst this Saturday. We'll taste some holiday bubbles in our wine Thunderdome at Table and Vine in West Springfield. And we'll hear about a queer, trans, black, indigenous, people of color makers market coming to Holyoke that... It invites all people of all abilities. We want to say a special thank you to Tony Dunn, our director, for making all this happen. We didn't get Billy Keen to promise to bring James Taylor on the show in 2024, but that is part of the goals. <laughs> and also a huge thanks to Bart Rankin, our engineer here, who's been pushing all the buttons behind the scenes. And Margaret Hotchkiss and Audrey Hackett, who also helped make all of this happen. Happy 200th show, Marty. Yeah, happy 200th show to you, too. Maybe <laughs> we got to go have some of that bubbly now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm fine with that. I'm Kali Smith. And I'm Monty Belmont. We'll see you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.